Section 11 of The Luck of Roaring Camp and Other Sketches. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. The Luck of Roaring Camp and Other Sketches by Bret Hart. Chapter 10 Melis, Parts 2 and 3. Chapter 2 the opinion which mcsnagley expressed in reference to the change of heart supposed to be experienced by melis was more forcibly described in the gulches and tunnels it was thought there that melis had struck a good lead so when there was a new grave added to the little enclosure and at the expense of the master a little board and inscription put above it the Red Mountain Banner came out quite handsomely, and did the fair thing to the memory of one of our oldest pioneers, alluding gracefully to that bane of noble intellects, and otherwise genteely shelving our dear brother with the past. He leaves an only child to mourn his loss, says the Banner, who is now an exemplary scholar, thanks to the efforts of the Reverend Mr. McSnagley the reverend mcsnagley in fact made a strong point of melissa's conversion and indirectly attributing to the unfortunate child the suicide of her father made affecting allusions in sunday school to the beneficial effects of the silent tomb and in this cheerful contemplation drove most of the children into speechless horror and caused the pink and white zions of the first families to howl dismally and refuse to be comforted the long dry summer came as each fierce day burned itself out in little whiffs of pearl-gray smoke on the mountain summits and the upspringing breeze scattered its red embers over the landscape the green wave which in early spring heaved above smith's grave grew sere and dry and hard. In those days the master, strolling in the little churchyard of a Sabbath afternoon, was sometimes surprised to find a few wild flowers plucked from the damp pine forests scattered there, and often rude wreaths hung upon the little pine cross. Most of these wreaths were formed of a sweet-scented grass which the children loved to keep in their desks intertwined with the plumes of the buckeye, the syringa, and the wood anemone, and here and there the master noticed the dark blue cowl of the monkshood, or deadly aconite. There was something in the odd association of this noxious plant with these memorials, which occasioned a painful sensation to the master deeper than his aesthetic sense. One day, during a long walk, in crossing a wooded ridge, he came upon Melis in the heart of the forest, perched upon a prostrate pine, on a fantastic throne formed by the hanging plumes of lifeless branches, her lap full of grasses and pine burrs, and crooning to herself one of the negro melodies of her younger life. Recognizing him at a distance, she made room for him on her elevated throne and with a grave assumption of hospitality and patronage that would have been ridiculous had it not been so terribly earnest she fed him with pine-nuts and crab-apples 
the master took that opportunity to point out to her the noxious and deadly qualities of the monk's hood, whose dark blossoms he saw in her lap, and extorted from her a promise not to meddle with it as long as she remained his pupil. This done, as the master had tested her integrity before, he rested satisfied, and the strange feeling which had overcome him on seeing them died away. Of the homes that were offered Melis when her conversion became known, the master preferred that of Mrs. Morfer, a womanly and kind-hearted specimen of southwestern efflorescence, known in her maidenhood as the Perere Rose. Being one of those who contend resolutely against their own natures, Mrs. Morfer, by a long series of self-sacrifices and struggles, had at last subjugated her naturally careless disposition to principles of order, which she considered, in common with Mr. Pope, as heaven's first law. But she could not entirely govern the orbits of her satellites, however regular her own movements, and even her own genes sometimes collided with her. Again her old nature asserted itself in her children. Lycurgus dipped into the cupboard between meals, and Aristides came home from school without shoes, leaving those important articles on the threshold for the delight of a barefooted walk down the ditches. Octavia and Cassandra were careless of their clothes. So with but one exception, however much the prairie rose might have trimmed and pruned and trained her own matured luxuriance, the little shoots came up defiantly wild and straggling. That one exception was Clytemnestra Morfer, aged fifteen. She was the realization of her mother's immaculate conception, neat, orderly, and dull. It was an amiable weakness of Mrs. Morfer to imagine that Clytie was a consolation and model for Melis. Following this fallacy, Mrs. Morfer threw Clytie at the head of Melis when she was bad, and set her up before the child for adoration in her penitential moments. It was not, therefore, surprising to the master to hear that Clytie was coming to school, obviously as a favor to the master, and as an example for Melis and others. For Clytie was quite a young lady, inheriting her mother's physical peculiarities and in obedience to the climatic laws of the Red Mountain region, she was an early bloomer. The youth of Smith's pocket, to whom this kind of flower was rare, sighed for her in April and languished in May. Enamoured swains haunted the schoolhouse at the hour of dismissal. A few were jealous of the master. Perhaps it was this latter circumstance that opened the master's eyes to another. He could not help noticing that Clytie was romantic, that in school she required a great deal of attention, that her pens were uniformly bad and wanted fixing, that she usually accompanied the request with a certain expectation in her eye that was somewhat disproportionate to the quality of service she verbally required that she sometimes allowed the curves of a round, plump white arm 
to rest on his when he was writing her copies, that she always blushed and flung back her blonde curls when she did so. I don't remember whether I have stated that the master was a young man. It's of little consequence, however. He had been severely educated in the school in which Clytie was taking her first lesson, and on the whole withstood the flexible curves and factitious glance like the fine young Spartan that he was. Perhaps an insufficient quality of food may have tended to this asceticism. He generally avoided Clytie, but one evening when she returned to the schoolhouse after something she had forgotten, and did not find it until the master walked home with her, I hear that he endeavored to make himself particularly agreeable, partly from the fact, I imagine, that his conduct was adding gall and bitterness to the already overcharged hearts of Clytemnestra's admirers. The morning after this affecting episode, Melis did not come to school. Noon came, but not Melis. Questioning Clytie on the subject, it appeared that they had left the school together, but the willful Melis had taken another road. The afternoon brought her not. In the evening he called on Mrs. Morfer, whose motherly heart was really alarmed. Mr. Morfer had spent all day in search of her, without discovering a trace that might lead to her discovery. Aristides was summoned as a probable accomplice, but that equitable infant succeeded in impressing the household with his innocence. Mrs. Morfer entertained a vivid impression that the child would yet be found drowned in a ditch, or, what was almost as terrible, muddied and soiled beyond the redemption of soap and water. Sick at heart, the master returned to the schoolhouse. As he lit his lamp and seated himself at his desk, he found a note lying before him, addressed to himself in Melissa's handwriting. It seemed to be written on a leaf torn from some old memorandum book, and to prevent sacrilegious trifling had been sealed with six broken wafers. Opening it almost tenderly, the master read as follows. Respected sir, when you read this, I am run away, never to come back, never, never, never. You can give my beads to Mary Jennings and my America's pride, a highly colored lithograph from a tobacco box, to Sally Flanders. But don't you give anything to Clytie Morfer. Don't you dare to. Do you know what my opinion is of her? It is this. She is perfectly disgusting. That is all, and no more at present, from yours respectfully, Melissa Smith. The master sat pondering on this strange epistle, till the moon lifted its bright face above the distant hills, and illuminated the trail that led to the schoolhouse, beaten quite hard with the coming and going of little feet. Then, more satisfied in mind, he tore the missive into fragments and scattered them along the road. At sunrise the next morning he was picking his way through the palm-like fern and thick underbrush of the pine forest, starting the hare from its form, and awakening a querulous protest from a few dissipated crows, who had evidently been making a night of it, 
and so came to the wooded ridge where he had once found Melis. There he found the prostrate pine and tasseled branches, but the throne was vacant. As he drew nearer, what might have been some frightened animal started through the crackling limbs. It ran up the tossed arms of the fallen monarch, and sheltered itself in some friendly foliage. The master, reaching the old seat, found the nest still warm. Looking up in the intertwining branches, he met the black eyes of the errant Melis. They gazed at each other without speaking. She was first to break the silence. "'What do you want?' she asked curtly. The master had decided on a course of action. "'I uh, want some crab-apples,' he said humbly. "'Chan't have em. Go away. Why don't you get em off Clytemnorestra? It seemed to be a relief to Melis to express her contempt in additional syllables to that classical young woman's already long-drawn title. "'Oh, you wicked thing!' "'I am hungry, Lissy. I have eaten nothing since dinner yesterday. I am famished.' And the young man, in a state of remarkable exhaustion, leaned against the tree. Melissa's heart was touched. In the bitter days of her gypsy life she had known the sensation he so artfully simulated. Overcome by his heartbroken tone, but not entirely divested of suspicion, she said, "'Dig under the tree near the roots, and you'll find lots. But mind you don't tell, for Melis had her hordes as well as the rats and squirrels.' But the master, of course, was unable to find them, the effects of hunger probably blinding his senses. Melis grew uneasy. At length she peered at him through the leaves in an elfish way and questioned, "'If I come down and give you some, you'll promise you won't touch me?' The master promised. "'Hope you'll die if you do?' The master accepted instant dissolution as a forfeit. Melis slid down the tree. For a few moments nothing transpired but the munching of the pine-nuts. "'Do you feel better?' she asked with some solicitude. The master confessed to a recuperated feeling, and then, gravely thanking her, proceeded to retrace his steps. As he expected, he had not gone far before she called him. He turned. She was standing there quite white, with tears in her widely opened orbs. The master felt that the right moment had come. Going up to her, he took both her hands, and looking in her tearful eyes, said gravely, "'Lissy, do you remember the first evening you came to see me?' Lissy remembered. "'You asked me if you might come to school, for you wanted to learn something and be better, and I said—' "'Come,' responded the child promptly. "'What would you say if the master now came to you and said that he was lonely without his little scholar, and that he wanted her to come and teach him to be better?' The child hung her head for a few moments in silence. The master waited patiently. Tempted by the quiet, a hare ran close to the couple, and, raising her bright eyes and velvet forepaws, sat and gazed at them. 
a squirrel ran halfway down the furrowed bark of the fallen tree and there stopped we are waiting lissy said the master in a whisper and the child smiled stirred by a passing breeze the tree-tops rocked and a long pencil of light stole through their interlaced boughs full on the doubting face and irresolute little figure suddenly she took the master's hand in her quick way what she said was scarcely audible but the master putting the black hair back from her forehead kissed her and so hand in hand they passed out of the damp aisles and forest odors into the open sunlit road chapter three somewhat less spiteful in her intercourse with other scholars Melis still retained an offensive attitude in regard to Clytemnestra. Perhaps the jealous element was not entirely lulled in her passionate little breast. Perhaps it was only that the round curves and plump outline offered more extended pinching surface. But while such ebullitions were under the master's control, her enmity occasionally took a new and irrepressible form. The master, in his first estimate of the child's character, could not conceive that she had ever possessed a doll. But the master, like many other professed readers of character, was safer in a posteriori than a priori reasoning. Melis had a doll, but then it was emphatically Melissa's doll, a smaller copy of herself. Its unhappy existence had been a secret discovered accidentally by Mrs. Morpher. It had been the old-time companion of Melissa's wanderings, and bore evident marks of suffering. Its original complexion was long since washed away by the weather, and anointed by the slime of ditches. It looked very much as Melissa had in days past. Its one gown of faded stuff was dirty and ragged as hers had been. Melis had never been known to apply to it any childish term of endearment. She never exhibited it in the presence of other children. It was put severely to bed in a hollow tree near the schoolhouse, and only allowed exercise during Melissa's rambles. Fulfilling a stern duty to her doll, as she would to herself, it knew no luxuries. Now Mrs. Morpher, obeying a commendable impulse, bought another doll and gave it to Melissa. The child received it gravely and curiously. The master, on looking at it one day, fancied he saw a slight resemblance in its round red cheeks and mild blue eyes to Clytemnestra. It became evident before long that Melissa had also noticed the same resemblance. Accordingly, she hammered its waxen head on the rocks when she was alone, and sometimes dragged it with a string around its neck to and from school. At other times, setting it up on her desk, she made a pincushion of its patient and inoffensive body. Whether this was done in revenge of what she considered a second figurative obtrusion of Clytie's excellence upon her, or whether she had an intuitive appreciation of the rights of certain other heathens, and indulging in that fetish ceremony, 
imagined that the original of her wax model would pine away and finally die is a metaphysical question I shall not now consider. In spite of these moral vagaries, the master could not help noticing in her different tasks the working of a quick, restless, and vigorous perception. She knew neither the hesitancy nor the doubts of childhood. Her answers in class were always slightly dashed with audacity. Of course she was not infallible, but her courage and daring in passing beyond her own depth and that of the floundering little swimmers around her, in their minds outweighed all errors of judgment. Children are not better than grown people in this respect, I fancy, and whenever the little red hand flashed above her desk there was a wondering silence, and even the master was sometimes oppressed with a doubt of his own experience and judgment. Nevertheless, certain attributes which at first amused and entertained his fancy began to afflict him with grave doubts. He could not but see that Melis was revengeful, irreverent, and willful, that there was but one better quality which pertained to her semi-savage disposition, the faculty of physical fortitude and self-sacrifice, and another, though not always an attribute of the noble savage, truth. Melis was both fearless and sincere. Perhaps in such a character the adjectives were synonymous. The master had been doing some hard thinking on this subject, and had arrived at that conclusion quite common to all who think sincerely, that he was generally the slave of his own prejudices, when he determined to call on the Reverend McSnagley for advice. This decision was somewhat humiliating to his pride, as he and McSnagley were not friends. But he thought of Melis and the evening of their first meeting, and perhaps with a pardonable superstition that it was not chance alone that had guided her willful feet to the schoolhouse, and perhaps with a complacent consciousness of the rare magnanimity of the act, he choked back his dislike and went to McSnagley. The reverend gentleman was glad to see him. Moreover, he observed that the master was looking pertish, and hoped he had got over the neuralgia and rheumatiz. He himself had been troubled with a dumb ager since last conference, but he had learned to wrestle and pray. Pausing a moment to enable the master to write his certain method of curing the dumb ager upon the book and volume of his brain, Mr. McStagley proceeded to inquire after Sister Morpher. She is an adornment to Christianity, and has a likely growin' young family, added Mr. McSnagley, and there's that mannerly young gal, so well-behaved, Miss Clytie. In fact, Clytie's perfections seemed to affect him to such an extent that he dwelt for several minutes upon them. The master was doubly embarrassed. In the first place there was an enforced contrast with poor Melis in all this praise of Clytie. Secondly, there was something unpleasantly confidential in his tone of speaking of Miss Morpher's earliest born, 
so that the master, after a few futile efforts to say something natural, found it convenient to recall another engagement, and left without asking the information required, but in his after-reflections somewhat unjustly giving the Reverend Mr. McSnagley the full benefit of having refused it. Perhaps this rebuff placed the master and pupil once more in the close communion of old. The child seemed to notice the change in the master's manner, which had of late been constrained, and in one of their long postprandial walks she stopped suddenly and, mounting a stump, looked full in his face with big searching eyes. "'You ain't mad,' she said, with an interrogative shake of the black braids. No. Nor bothered? No. Nor hungry? Hunger was to Melissa sickness that might attack a person at any moment. No. Nor thinking of her? Of whom, Lissy? That white girl. This was the latest epithet invented by Melissa, who was a very dark brunette to express Clytemnestra. No. Upon your word? A substitute for hope you'll die, proposed by the master. Yes. And sacred honor? Yes. Then Melissa gave him a fierce little kiss, and hopping down, fluttered off. For two or three days after that she condescended to appear more like other children and be, as she expressed it, good. Two years had passed since the master's advent at Smith's pocket, and as his salary was not large, and the prospects of Smith's pocket eventually becoming the capital of the state not entirely definite, he contemplated a change. He had informed the school trustees privately of his intentions, but educated young men of unblemished moral character being scarce at that time, he consented to continue his school term through the winter to early spring. None else knew of his intention except his one friend, a Dr. Duquesne, a young Creole physician known to the people of Wyndham as Duquesne'sney. He never mentioned it to Miss Morfer, Clytie, or any of his scholars. His reticence was partly the result of a constitutional indisposition to fuss, partly a desire to be spared the questions and surmises of vulgar curiosity, and partly that he never really believed he was going to do anything before it was done. He did not like to think of Melis. It was a selfish instinct, perhaps, which made him try to fancy his feeling for the child was foolish, romantic, and unpractical. He even tried to imagine that she would do better under the control of an older and sterner teacher. Then she was nearly eleven, and in a few years, by the rules of Red Mountain, would be a woman. He had done his duty. After Smith's death he addressed letters to Smith's relatives, and received one answer from a sister of Melissa's mother. Thanking the master, she stated her intention of leaving the Atlantic States for California with her husband in a few months. This was a slight superstructure for the airy castle, 
which the master pictured for Melissa's home, but it was easy to fancy that some loving, sympathetic woman with the claims of kindred might better guide her wayward nature. Yet when the master had read the letter, Melissa listened to it carelessly, received it submissively, and afterwards cut figures out of it with her scissors, supposed to represent Clytemnestra, labelled the white girl, to prevent mistakes, and impaled them upon the outer walls of the schoolhouse. When the summer was about spent, and the last harvest had been gathered in the valleys, the master bethought him of gathering in a few ripened shoots of the young idea, and of having his harvest home or examination. So the savans and professionals of Smith's pocket were gathered to witness that time-honored custom of placing timid children in a constrained position and bullying them as in a witness-box. As usual in such cases, the most audacious and self-possessed were the lucky recipients of the honors. The reader will imagine that in the present instance Melissa and Clytie were preeminent and divided public attention. Melissa with her clearness of material perception and self-reliance, Clytie with her placid self-esteem and saint-like correctness of deportment. The other little ones were timid and blundering. Melissa's readiness and brilliancy, of course, captivated the greatest number and provoked the greatest applause. Melissa's antecedents had unconsciously awakened the strongest sympathies of a class whose athletic forms were ranged against the walls, or whose handsome bearded faces looked in at the windows. But Melissa's popularity was overthrown by an unexpected circumstance. McSnagley had invited himself, and had been going through the pleasing entertainment of frightening the more timid pupils by the vaguest and most ambiguous questions delivered in an impressive funereal tone. And Melissa had soared into astronomy, and was tracking the course of her spotted ball through space, and keeping time with the music of the spheres, and defining the tethered orbits of the planets, when McSnagley impressively arose. Melissy, ye are speaking o' the revolutions of this year earth, and the movements of the sun, and I think ye said it had been a doin' of it since the creation, eh? Melissa nodded a scornful affirmative. Well, why were that truth? said McSnagley, folding his arms. Yes, said Melissa, shutting up her little red lips tightly. The handsome outlines at the windows peered further in the schoolroom, and a saintly Raphael face with blonde beard and soft blue eyes, belonging to the biggest scamp in the diggings, turned toward the child and whispered, Stick to it, Melis. The reverend gentleman heaved a deep sigh and cast a compassionate glance at the master, then at the children, and then rested his look on Clytie. That young woman softly elevated her round white arm. Its seductive curves were enhanced by a gorgeous and massive specimen bracelet, the gift of one of her humblest worshippers, worn in honor of the occasion. There was a momentary silence. Clytie's round cheeks were very pink and soft. 
Clytie's big eyes were very bright and blue. Clytie's low-necked white book muslin rested softly on Clytie's white plump shoulders. Clytie looked at the master, and the master nodded. Then Clytie spoke softly. Joshua commanded the sun to stand still, and it obeyed him. There was a low hum of applause in the schoolroom, a triumphant expression on McSnagley's face, a grave shadow on the master's, and a comical look of disappointment reflected from the windows. Melis skimmed rapidly over her astronomy, and then shut the book with a loud snap. A groan burst from McSnagley, an expression of astonishment from the schoolroom, a yell from the windows, as Melis brought her red fist down on the desk with the emphatic declaration, It's a damned lie! I don't believe it! End of Melis, Chapters 2 and 3